In today's episode, we open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 10, verses 9 through 43. Peter, praying on a rooftop, is granted a vision where God challenges, well, Jewish dietary laws, but it really symbolizes the breaking of boundaries between Jews and Gentiles. Meanwhile, Cornelius' messengers arrive and are inviting Peter to Caesarea. And in this groundbreaking encounter, Peter proclaims that God shows no partiality, preaching the gospel to these Gentiles. And as he speaks, the Holy Spirit descends upon all who are present. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Tuesday, when, pardon me, Wednesday, August 2nd, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word thrives thanks to listeners like you whose prayers and contributions support KFEO's radio ministry. Our heartfelt gratitude also goes out to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, our sponsor for today. They translate, publish, and distribute biblically-based and Christ-centered materials around the world. You can explore LHF's amazing work and learn how they can help you or how you can help them over at lhfmissions.org. But for now, please join me in welcoming my guest this morning. It's the Reverend Roger Mullet. He's the pastor of Faith Evangelical Lutheran Church in Churubusco, Indiana. Good morning, Pastor Mullet. As always, welcome back to the show. Good morning. Great to be back with you. Oh, it's amazing to have you on. Uh, today we are moving into Peter's rooftop vision. That should be, uh, I guess, interesting fodder for conversation. Uh, but before we get into any of it, would you start us off with some prayer? Let us pray. Gracious Lord, through your prophets and apostles, you have revealed to us that your mission is not for the Jew only, but so also for the Gentiles, indeed for all the nations. So help us who are members of those nations to rejoice in your gift of salvation. And so also inspire us by your spirit to have patience and grace for all your people whom you have made in your image and likeness, that we might participate in the growth of your kingdom in word and in sacrament. All this we ask in your most holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's talk about how we got here, right? So Peter has been going around and doing the work of the Lord, doing the work of an apostle. Uh, he healed Aeneas. He raised Dorcas, also known as Tabitha, from, from death to life. And uh, now he is, well, unbeknownst to him, there is someone coming to visit with him, uh, Cornelius. Uh, catch us up a little bit more about how we got to where we are going to talk about today. Sure. So as you mentioned, Peter's been on the move, um, doing a lot of the things that we see Jesus doing in the Gospels. Uh, and now his apostles, as Jesus himself said, uh, are going around preaching and Jesus himself accompanies them and works these uh, signs and wonders. We see that hinted at at the end of Mark's Gospel, for example. Um, and at the moment, uh, Peter finds himself in Joppa. And uh, meanwhile, Cornelius um, has has been praying. All we know about Cornelius so far, really, is that he's a very uh, a very devout man. Uh, that he prays continually. That he is a centurion, um, so presumably a Roman, and um, and and yet he's faithful. And how exactly that has happened, we we don't know. Um, but 
uh, I think it was in your summary of, of yesterday's uh, section that you said those these two worlds are about to converge, and that's exactly what's about to happen. Um, Peter, uh, very faithful, very zealous uh, Jew, uh, going around doing the work of the Lord in the name of Jesus and accompanied by the word and spirit is about to clash with this Gentile believer and and his cohort and uh, and indeed those worlds collide. Yes, so back there we have Cornelius, and he has taken one of uh, his uh, fellow soldiers, another devout man, and also two of his servants, and I assume some others, and he has sent them up to Joppa. And that's where our text begins today. So it begins with Peter, starting with verse 19. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry. And he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And then it continues, Peter is inwardly perplexed about what he saw. But before we move into his inward perplexion, uh, let's talk about what, what we just heard, right? So Peter is up on the housetop to pray, and he receives a vision. Yeah, we might likewise be inwardly perplexed um, because there's nothing quite like this elsewhere in the Bible. Now, however far down any sorts of roads you want to go, this is this is certainly your show. Um, but I think there are some neat parallels to be found in here, actually looking all the way back to uh, the flood and Noah's Ark um, to, to just kind of put those uh, maybe pictures in the heads of the listeners as we kind of poke through here. So Peter's up on the housetop to pray. Presumably he just goes up on the housetop for a little bit of privacy. Uh, the sixth hour is about noon. Um, so this is a reasonable, we're going to go and have uh, midday prayer right before lunch. And uh, while he's up there, nevertheless, he gets a vision. And I think this is something similar to um, what the prophets received right, when they received their prophecies in Old Testament times. Um, I think that's kind of the way that we should hear this here. Trance kind of has an odd connotation nowadays in English. Um, yeah. But but I think this is similar to what, what the prophets would have experienced when they received the word of the Lord. And he sees the heavens being opened in, in uh, Genesis when it's the flood. It's the windows of the heavens being opened. And something like a great sheet descending. And I love that word something because that's exactly what it says in Greek. Uh, and then it happens again in verse 16, the thing, whatever it was, uh, right. was taken up again into heaven. Whatever this thing is, um, I've always kind of pictured it in my mind as a great picnic blanket uh, mm -hmm. being let down by its corners onto the earth. But what's inside is much more important, I think, than what's uh, what exactly the thing is. We have all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. Again, another parallel to the contents of the ark, I think. Um, and verse 13 is really where I think the parallel is strongest. Rise, Peter, kill and eat, which is 
very strongly linked, I think, back to the commandment that God gives to Noah and his family as they disembark in Genesis chapter 9, where now everything is available for them to eat, uh, that we do kind of have a transition there after the flood from vegetarianism to now uh, it's okay to be an omnivore and have your meat along with your vegetables. Um, and we see now another expansion of that. And I think in time and space, of course, these are historical things that really happened. Um, but as we as we move through this portion of Acts chapter 10, we'll also kind of see that there's there's this gradual expansion and that the plan all along has been for God to include all people, all nations, uh, and that we kind of see these little thematic expansions. Here it happens to be with food um, that, that kind of foreshadow that here and there. And that, and that it happens three times, I think, is significant. Um, there aren't, for all the significance we give to the number three, there aren't actually very many of them in the scriptures. Um, uh, and yet, uh, I think the repetition for emphasis uh, makes it very clear to Peter that this is, in fact, the Lord speaking to him. And of course, God's words uh, in verse 15 reflect something that Jesus has already taught us back in the Gospels in uh, Mark 7, and its parallel is Matthew 15, I believe, that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but rather what comes out and even in, in those gospel passages, the, uh, the gospel writers make clear, thus, Jesus declares all foods to become clean. But as is usually the case with the disciples and with us, it takes a few times through it to figure out what Jesus actually means. Well, let's talk about that for just a moment, because I believe that what a lot of people, especially with a surface level reading and often it being read out of context, I think a lot of people walk away with this being oh, okay, God has made all foods clean. Like, this is the moment. But this really doesn't have much to do with food or what to eat, at least not on a, a first-level kind of understanding. This is deeper than just what kinds of foods to eat. Absolutely. Um, and, we'll, and we'll see that as we progress, and, and Peter has his encounter with uh, first with Cornelius' men and then with Cornelius himself. And Peter doesn't get it at first. He thinks it's about food at first. Um, but as, as you said, we come to discover that uh, what God has made clean, which is to say, I think if we want to think a little bit bigger picture and, and dig into that symbolism a little bit, let's say what God has made holy or what God has set apart do not call common. Um, so frequently in, in the Gospels, we see this attitude displayed by many different, uh, many different Jews, particularly, for example, the Pharisees, um, who, who see Gentiles as, as commoners uh, and as unclean, just inherently unclean. Uh, and according to ceremonial law, many times they were. Um, but what the point uh, is here, of course, is that God has set apart the Gentiles for salvation as well, which is simply to say God has set apart all mankind for salvation. Um, Jesus accomplishes the salvation of all mankind on the cross, uh, not that it would be uh, just for some and then maybe for others later on by jumping through the hoops and becoming Jewish. Uh, that's that's what Galatians is about. Um, but But that's the bigger picture here, of course. What God has made clean, do not call common. These people that for so long have been seen as outsiders to the plan of salvation or outsiders to God's people, just like these foods that have been seen for so long as unclean 
Well, they're not actually unclean. Um, the distinction between clean and unclean food has served its purpose. The Messiah has arrived and, and accomplished his work of salvation. Um, but Gentiles were never actually excluded from the plan of salvation, nor from God's people. We see uh, sojourners and foreigners included among the people of Israel all over the place in the Old Testament. Uh, just consider how many Egyptians went with them in the Exodus because they kind of looked at the plagues and recognized, hey, this this uh, Israelite God, he seems to know what he's doing. I think we'll go with him. Um, but things like that happen all over. We tend to overlook it, I think, because of the New Testament's heavy emphasis on the shift in the mission from Jew to Gentile. But they really have been included. We have really been included all along. That's such an important point, too, because when he makes a nation of priests in terms of his chosen people, well, there you have to be a priest to someone, and they were priests to the other nations. I've always understood it as, you know, they should have really done more to bring in the other nations and not join after them. And it's their sin of of joining after the neighbors around them and following after their gods that I think really brought forth this maybe even necessary emphasis on making sure you remain unstained from their ways. But in an effort to remain unstained from their ways, they just tried to remain completely separated from them. And I, we see, I see that today in our church where we look out and we think, well, here are people who are worthy of salvation. Here are people who, well, obviously everybody's worthy of salvation, but there, somebody else can minister to them. You see what I'm saying? I think we all often will put people in categories based on our own biases, and that's something we have to be very careful about too. Absolutely. That's, that's a little trap that we all fall into, and it's I don't think it's anything that we ever do maliciously, um, but we, we do it just kind of by virtue of, you know, uh, and I don't want to blame our parents or our grandparents by any stretch. That's not what I'm trying to do. But, but growing up in certain communities, um, you, it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly that, oh, well, so-and-so is not originally from here, particularly, I think, in our, uh, you know, the vast majority of our churches, our small churches where everybody's kind of been together for years and years and years. And, and again, whether they mean to be malicious about it or not, I'm confident they usually don't. Um, it's, it's kind of hard to imagine bringing more people in on, on whatever basis that may be. We have a hard time imagining someone who's not exactly like us sitting next to us in the pews, whatever that exactly means. And, and again, I'm not accusing anyone of any particular sin. It's just kind of something that we all have to deal with um, that, you know, we see it in Old Testament Israel. We see it in New Testament Israel in the book of Acts. Peter struggles with this over and over and over. And um, it, it's just kind of a, a general built into the human condition, fear of the unknown or the different, I think, that we kind of have to deal with and and struggle against and and try to, for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom, uh, overcome as best we can with the Spirit's help. Well, let's see what Peter was doing as he was struggling with this, starting with verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. 
And Peter went down to the men, and he said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in to be his guests. All right, pausing right there in the middle of verse 23. So he's invited them in. He's a guest himself, though, in the house of Simon the Tanner, which also already is uh, very much bridging a cultural faux pas there, right? I mean, for a Jew to go in and spend time with a Gentile is unheard of. But Peter, he's um, he's he's also following... I guess he's also breaking that faux pas. We see it slowly moving towards this, opening up Peter's mind to this understanding that all people are included. Yeah, and the and the Spirit helps, right? The Spirit tells him, rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Uh, so, you know, every so often when we're slow to figure it out, um, God just comes right out and tells us, um, which is helpful. But yeah, you're right. Peter is slowly catching on to what's happening here. And I think, you know, backing up to the end of, uh, let's see, is it the end of chapter nine where we learn that this Simon um, that he's staying with is a tanner, which makes you unclean to begin with um, because you're in contact with all of those, uh, with all the animals. Um, I think that's one of those jobs that just makes you perpetually unclean regardless. Um, but to to have gone in with this Simon guy and stay there. I think Peter is starting to catch on. Um, certainly, uh, I, I should mention that much of the conflict with Paul and Peter, uh, particularly as it's outlined, uh, for example, in Galatians, where you know Peter is uh, also accused here and there of kind of living a double life, of um, of acting like a Gentile when it suits him and acting like a Jew when it suits him. But I don't, I don't think that's what's happening here. I think with the vision, uh, with all the works of God that he has seen being accomplished through his hands and his preaching, and now with these men coming to find him, particularly as they are sent by another Gentile who is described as an upright and God-fearing man, well-spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, um, I think the pieces are falling into place for Peter, and he's kind of recognizing these these are actually fellow people of God. Well, while he's pondering this vision, the Holy Spirit tells him to go get these men, and of course he does. And he says, why, why are you here? And and you're right. They they say, look, here's the here's the uh, pedigree of the person that is sending us. Right? He's a centurion. Even the Jews like him because he's really he's vouched for, he's spoken for, um, and he says, "I want to, uh, I, I, I'm coming to bring you back to Cornelius's house because he wants to hear what you have to say." We talked about this a little bit yesterday, but Cornelius's faith, and, and I know he becomes a Christian, but at this point, he's really just a faithful follower of Yahweh, right? So he's wanting Peter to come down. But he's only wanting Peter to come down, of course, because he was also instructed. So the Holy Spirit is really kind of, I, I don't want to say backseat driving, I don't want to be blasphemous, but he's really making all the moves behind <laughs> the scenes while these guys are doing uh, what they're doing. As it so frequently happens, um, you know, one of the great things that we see in the book of Acts, not only through this little portion, but through so much of it, so many of the different stories and episodes in Acts, 
is that God, um, that God really is, and hopefully it's not blasphemous, um, that God really is sort of a backseat driver, only insofar as we mean that God works through people, um, that God does not simply sit on his throne and, and leave us to sit in our chairs while he moves everything by himself. No, by his grace, he lets us participate in the work of his kingdom on earth. Um, he calls us to be pastors and he calls others to be teachers and he calls many to be simply husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and children um, to to raise up more and more Christians, you know, that we all have, according to our vocations, a different part to play. Um, I think that's one of the most remarkable things about the way God operates. And we see that put before us in the book of Acts, that God does not leave us with nothing to do. He, uh, he works in us and through us to accomplish his means, even as he works in and through, um, for example, the means of water to accomplish holy baptism, bread and wine to accomplish the delivery of uh, Jesus' body and blood in the Lord's Supper and so on. That, uh, but from the very beginning, uh, God has worked through means. He sent prophets, he sends apostles and so on. Well, let's see what happens next. Uh, so continuing, well, actually, I'll just begin at the beginning of verse 23 again. It goes, so he invited them to be his guests. The next day he arose and went with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. All right, stopping there at the end of 26. So he goes, he goes with these men. It takes him a few days to get there. And as soon as he arrives, uh, Cornelius falls down at his feet and it says worships him. That's the translation here. Uh, but basically he uh, honors Peter's presence. And why wouldn't he? An angel literally told him to go fetch him. But but Peter quickly corrects him. Uh, take us through this, brother. Yeah, a, a kind of a revelation moment there, um, where John John in the book of Revelation wants to uh, fall down at the feet of the angel who's kind of talking him through the vision, and the angel says similar. Right, we're we're both servants of God here, and I think so. This is an act of uh, great great piety and faith on the part of Cornelius, uh, and an act of great humility on the part of Peter. To recognize that this Gentile, uh, great though Cornelius certainly is as a centurion, he has a certain amount of authority and status afforded to him. Um, yet Peter, uh, by lifting him up, I too am a man. We're on the same level here. We are the same in the eyes of God, which is something that Peter will get to uh, in a few in a few more verses here. I think the confidence that we see exhibited here by Cornelius, and again, we just see the spirit working behind the scenes in so many different ways. He's called together all of his relatives and close friends. I mean, Peter's not just going to preach to one person, Cornelius and his household. This is now many households that, you know, Cornelius, if I can turn the phrase a little bit, Cornelius has very briefly established a house church um, so that many more might hear this message. And this is Cornelius's confidence in Peter, I think, but also most especially in the Lord, that he would gather these people together for hearing what Cornelius knows by faith will in fact be the word of the Lord.
Yes, and and not only that, but just imagine the scene. I mean, he is a very powerful person. He's invited people who serve under him to be there. He's invited his family to be there, people who probably look up to him or at their very least admire him. And when Peter enters, the first thing he does, and the word there, uh, proskeneo, uh, that we translate worship, it can also just be sort of fall prostrate, bend down, that sort of thing. Here is this very powerful man prostrating himself before this Peter who's come. And so while Peter does the right thing and standing him up and, and you know, making sure the roles are understood, that is such a, uh, oh, he's, uh, you know, Cornelius is really putting himself in a position of being um, very vulnerable before before people who typically look at him and see a very powerful man. I think that just even that action speaks a lot. That's a good point, too. That is, I hadn't really considered that specific aspect, but that's an important one that now this, again, right? I, I mean, you mentioned, I mentioned how powerful this guy actually is, how much authority he carries. Um, and yet, in the presence of this man that he knows will deliver God's gifts to him, he is prepared to set all of that aside. I mean, what a demonstration of his faith, right? That all of that worldly stuff falls away. And, and so it is, right? I mean, we can kind of take both of these things together, not only Cornelius's actions, but also Peter's actions in lifting him back up. When we enter into the house of God for worship, to remember that any of those distinctions that the world might make, be it um, socioeconomic or, or anything else like that, um, with status or power that the world affords to us on the basis mostly of our occupations, those things all fall away before the Lord. Um, none of those distinctions matter in the house of God. We are all sinners and we all receive God's gifts of forgiveness, life and salvation right alongside one another. We all too are men. And I think, and this is a little bit of an aside, but it's based on what you've just been saying. When we pray the prayer of the church, we often will include our governors and our president. And so we'll say, you know, uh, Joseph, the president, and in our case here in Minnesota, Timothy, the governor. And people have occasionally come up and said, well, I think that's disrespectful to not refer to the governor by his title or his last name or the president for that instance. So uh, I, this is very, very much why we do that, right, though, because before God, we are all equal. We're all poor, miserable sinners, and we all have uh, equal access to the forgiveness of, of Christ uh, unless we reject it. So, so that's why we do that. It's, it's not, we're not trying to purposely humble these people who are in positions of authority. It's just a recognition that before God, their authority matters very little. Yeah, absolutely. Oddly enough, I've had exactly the same, uh, the same conversation with folks, and it's, it's not at all meant to be disrespectful. It's just that, you know, to be kind of blunt about it, inside the walls of the church, well, we are all simply fellow Christians coming before our God to receive his gifts. It doesn't matter whether he's the president or not. Precisely. Well, I'll tell you what, folks, we're going to take just a few moments and uh, listen to these messages when we come back, though. So please join us. We're going to keep on going through Acts chapter 10. Don't miss it. We'll see you on the other side.
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Roger Mullet. He's the pastor of Faith Evangelical Lutheran Church in Churubusco, Indiana. Folks, over the air, as a podcast, online at kfuo.org, or using the KFUO radio app, no matter how you're connecting with us this morning, I'm just so grateful you're here. And if you have any thoughts or questions about the show, you can reach me at PastorBoo at gmail.com, or you can find me at PhilBoo over on Facebook. Well, I tell you what, Pastor, before the break, we were just kind of getting into it. You know, Peter had just entered the house. Cornelius falls prostrate before him. Uh, uh, social norms are flying out the window. Uh, Gentiles and, and Jews are coming together. Uh, people who don't know the Lord have undoubtedly gathered also uh, there, there really is something exciting on the horizon for all the people here in Cornelius's house. Um, anything before I continue the narrative? No, let's let's dig into it. And as he talked with him, verse 27 says, he went in and he found many persons gathered. And, and Peter said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And that's where we're going to pause, end of verse 33. So, so, you know, for all of our efforts to proclaim the good news to people in our communities, uh, and including the relationships in which God brings them in, I don't think any of us, maybe some, but I don't think any of us could really say we had been sent for so that someone could hear our message. Oftentimes it feels like we're having to impose the word of the Lord on people, but here we have someone <laughs> eagerly receiving it. Um, boy, just wouldn't that be exciting as a pastor to have someone call up and say, hey, listen, I, I just, I, I feel led to call you and I want you to come and tell me everything the Lord has ever told you. It's like, yeah, I'll be right there. I don't know. It's it's certainly a wonderful opportunity for Peter, and we're going to hear what he has to say in a minute. But before we get there, um, this is a this is a strange scene, isn't it? I think it's a little bit like the divine call, actually. Um, 
I, I think mm. that's that's about as the closest thing I can come up with. Um, yeah, but that would was, breach, I tell you. I don't know. I don't know how. <laughs> I think it, no, I think uh, it would. We'd have to do. I think it yeah. would. I was going to mention um, that in in the time since I was last with you, I've actually uh, received and accepted a divine call. That just made me. Oh uh, no. I don't remember if if it was introduced that way at the beginning of the show or not. And then you did it again after the break, and I got so excited about getting back in. I honestly don't remember what you said. Um, uh, well, uh, where are you serving right now? Let's see if I have it right. So now I'm I'm at. Prince of Peace in Buffalo, Wyoming. No, I still have you in Indiana, so we're going to be oh, changing okay. that right now. Well, you that's did, all right. I, I think I got the note. It's my fault, but yes, Prince no, of that's Peace. Okay. Not to, sorry, not to interrupt the flow, but I think no, that is that's kind okay. Of, I'm making the changes I think that's right kind now. of what this is. I think that's kind of what's going on here, um, that if, if we, you know, when we think about what we believe about the divine call, uh, and what we've seen about the spirit working kind of behind the scenes and through all these different people in this in this uh, passage, I think that is kind of what's going on. Um, this, I mean, the spirit comes to him. Cornelius is in prayer at his house at the ninth hour. That'd be 3 p.m. Uh, and the man in bright clothing, which is how those angels are so often described in the New Testament, your prayer has been heard. Send, therefore, this is who this is who I'm going to send to you. Go to Joppa, ask for Simon. He's in Simon's house, not to be confusing. Um, so Cornelius sends for Peter, and Peter has been kind enough to come, and all the people have gathered together to hear. And this is kind of an odd phrase, uh, because Peter asks, like, why am I going? Why did you come and get me? Why did you send for me? And so on. And the question still hasn't quite been answered, except for, well, God, God said so. Um, but I think it's this very last portion of verse 33 that kind of helps us see what's going on. We are all here in the presence of God, wherever two or three are gathered, to hear that you, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord, which is to say they're looking backwards, not only to the idea of the Great Commission, right, where we make disciples, not only by baptizing, but by accompanying that baptizing then with the teaching. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 28? To teach them all that I have commanded you. Um, and, and looking back, I think Peter, hopefully Peter is kind of remembering here, uh, John 21, where he gets his, um, little, uh, moment with Jesus on the shore of, uh, on the shore of the sea of Galilee with the threefold feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, or whichever order it goes in. I forget, um, that nice little threefold thing. Maybe that goes with the threefold vision that he's had that now this preaching goes to the Gentiles as well. What God has made clean, do not call common. And that's what they're here for. They are here for the word of the Lord. And I think you're exactly right in what you say about uh, it being kind of a kind of a task, almost a little bit of a chore sometimes when we think about outreach to our communities or, or even uh, just as as lay Christians reaching out to others in our lives uh, who who we may meet through our various vocations, um, that you know so often the the sinful flesh just doesn't want much to do with it, and even we as Christians have to struggle against this struggle against uh, it's one more thing to do in a day, and adding adding family devotions takes extra time and we might not be able to coordinate our schedules very well and all these things. But it's important to see, as we've already mentioned in this section, we see the spirit working over and over and over again. And it's important to remember that the gathering of believers to hear God's word is also done by the power of the spirit. That word and spirit always run together. They always come together um, to work and to sustain saving faith. And so it is also here. 
that the Spirit has gathered these together to hear the word of the Lord. Well, and indeed, as you've been pointing out, he gathers us, both unbelievers and believers. He gives us the opportunity in the relationships that we've built up. Uh, the reason why I think a lot of people feel like they're imposing on others or feel like the world isn't receptive to the message is because some of the ways in which we try to evangelize people, frankly, is imposing on others. <laughs> it's not a welcome way. Going about and 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 knocking on doors can have certain kind of effects, uh, maybe, to get the word out about an event you're having, but to build relationships that lead to Christ, it's probably not the most efficient use of your time. Uh, God has put people in your life to share that message with, and of course, if you're striving to build up relationships with others, you're going to have that uh, more opportunities to share that. But in the same way, I talked about how you have believers come, or unbelievers really, coming too. They're, they respect Cornelius enough to come, but also believers themselves, as you've been saying, it's sometimes tough to get them in a, in a Bible study or a Bible class or in devotions at home if that's not their style. Uh, but we all need to kind of seek out, <laughs> be as eager as Cornelius is to hear what God commands in his word. It's such a privilege, and we have such access to it today. Uh, it just was, it would have been unfathomable, the type of access we have to God's word to these people in our uh, lesson for this morning. Yeah, I think um, a, a couple things. I didn't really quite mention this before, but uh, Cornelius, I think, is a great example for us of how simple evangelism can actually be. He had called together his relatives and close friends, the people he knows, the yeah, people, people he's he closely related to, right? I mean, this is not the, the invitation here in terms of evangelism is not to, uh, I mean, it certainly can be. And, and if you're, if you're built for this sort of thing, um, God be praised and the Lord be with you. But um, it, it does not have to be this intimidating walking up to strangers and immediately leading with um, with Jesus and 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 I think the fear is very much right that oh well uh, they'll immediately run away or they won't want to talk to me at all and so on. But as you mentioned, right, evangelism, outreach, whatever, whichever word you want to use for what we're talking about, is so much more about building those relationships. And so when we think about these things, to well, to start with the relationships that are already very well built with our relatives and close friends, and to do as we see in the example of Philip and Nathaniel, right? He didn't try to convince him. He didn't try to argue him into it. He just said, come and see. Come and see Jesus. Just, just come and see it for yourself. And then you'll know. And that's exactly what Cornelius is doing. Uh, but you're right. Also, with access to the word, I mean, we have the entirety of the scriptures, Old and New Testaments, in English. And in so many different English translations to choose from, you know, once upon a time, it was only the King James. And, you know, it's sometimes in some passages, it's hard to read and understand exactly what it says, just because of the way our English has kind of shifted in its use and vocabulary over the years. So now we have the ESV. I think that's probably what most of our congregations use now, because that's what the lectionary uses. Um, but we have more to choose from and to put side by side and compare. And we have study Bibles, and we have commentaries, and we have all of these things, all these resources before us to open up the scriptures to us, to help us have that deeper relationship with our Lord, to better understand what he says to us and what he would have us help in, say, to the world. 
And as we're talking just briefly about different types of Bible translations, I think it's always good to point out, and we covered this very recently with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, to just read the words off the page outside the faith is dangerous enough, but even with faith, the Holy Spirit guides our thinking for sure, but he brings us into a community so that that thinking can be, well, checked against the history of the church and can be checked against what believers have always confessed. So being in the Word at home is great. Uh, being in the Word through Thy Strong Word or Sharper Iron or all the other many great programs on KFUO is also great, but it's also really important that if you're able, make yourself available to the very least a pastor, but preferably a group of Christians, including a pastor at church. I mean, Bible study at church is incredibly important. And yeah, it doesn't. It didn't always exist in the history of the church, uh, but this is one of those innovations where, wow, what a privilege we have to be able to gather around fellow faithful Christians and knowledgeable teachers and learn the Word of God. And that, that bouncing things off of each other is so important. Um, the ability to discuss and to, you know, those different perspectives um, that come from all those different walks of life that we come from, uh, different things that happen to us earlier in our life, different occupations that we have, different relationships that we have, bringing those different perspectives and helping us see more and more deeply into what what could it mean, what does it mean, and kind of reasoning together, um, you know, and what the Book of Concord calls the mutual conversation and consolation of the brethren. Um, you know, it's pretty remarkable that that's, that's kind of hinted at there in in the Book of Concord is, is that by itself being a means of grace, that Christian fellowship that we enjoy. Not that it forgives our sins by virtue of being in the same room as each other, but that God's grace is shown to us there when we are able to do that together. Absolutely an instrument of God and uh, such a privilege we have to gather and worship. Let's keep on going, though, because now Peter's going to open his mouth and, well, tell them what he has been commanded by the Lord. Verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins, through his name. Now, our, our section actually ends for this morning. I had to divide it up very strangely. We're going to continue this conversation tomorrow, but it says, and I'll, I'll, I'll give us a sneak peek in 44, while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because it was being poured out, the Holy Spirit that is, even on the Gentiles. So, so back to his message, though. Peter opens his message, and he gives 
we've been treated a couple times to these sort of mini summaries of all of God's activity throughout history by Stephen, and uh, I think Philip did it too a little bit. But but here we have uh, a very shortened version of what was happening. In fact, he kind of began not with Abraham, but with John the Baptist. Yeah, this this little um, salvation summary, if you will, is is as you mentioned, very uh, common way to to kind of preach in the book of Acts. And I wonder if there might be something there for us as preachers to kind of remember um, that. You know, this might be worth doing in our own preaching and teaching. Um, this this beginning, truly, I understand. I mean, this is the moment. I'm sure it, you know, came to pass in the moments leading up to the sermon itself. But this is kind of the moment where Peter now has put all of the pieces together. Truly, I understand. I get the vision. I get all the stuff that Jesus said. You know, we see so often in the Gospels that uh, Jesus did or said such and such a thing, but the disciples didn't really understand it until after the resurrection, or they did not understand it until much later. This is kind of a, a this is, I mean, one of those big moments for Peter where he it finally clicks for him. God shows no partiality. Uh, and that, of course, is reflected in many of the epistles. Uh, I mean, that just that phrase, God shows no partiality, that's in Romans, uh, it's in Ephesians, it's in Galatians. And then in James, uh, it's picked up encouraging Christians to show no partiality because God shows no partiality. Um, and then, right, as for the word that he sent to Israel, and I think, as you mentioned, this is John the Baptist. There's a little hint here that the word that he sent to Israel, that's usually the word, when we think of word sent to Israel, we think of the Old Testament prophets. And it's helpful to remember that that's exactly who John the Baptist is. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets that he follows in that long line. And so while the Old Testament does not specifically say the good news of peace is through Jesus Christ, right? That's not specifically or uh, exactly the words of the Old Testament, but to show that the message of John the Baptist and the message of Jesus himself, and the message of the apostles, and the preachers who are sent to God's church and people even to this day, it all follows that same line of continuity, the same message of peace with God through his mediator, his Messiah. We now know his name is Jesus Christ. That peace and that forgiveness has been the same message all the way along. Um, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, a reference to Jesus' baptism, I think. And then we see, of course, um, doing good, healing, casting out demons, and this kind of recounting of the good works of God, especially in the book of Acts, because Peter can call upon, as he does when he references the uh, resurrection, you can call upon those witnesses. If you don't believe me, you can go and ask. Here's a list of more people that you can go and ask who saw these same things happen. St. Paul does this in 1 Corinthians 15 with the resurrection, right? He appeared to 500 or more, some of whom have fallen asleep, but many of whom are still alive. If you don't believe me, go and ask them. I can give you names, right? And, and this early on, especially, and we see kind of the very rapid expansion outward of Christianity in the book of Acts. This is a very powerful thing that we have people who were there. I mean, that we have gospels written by eyewitnesses, that we have 
epistles written by eyewitnesses to these things um, is is a remarkable testament to to the the veracity of these things. Uh, they were there when it happened, and now uh, Peter is saying the same. No, look, and I think that might be the reason he starts later on. Um, because no doubt some of the people who were there with him, because somewhere somewhere in here it says that um, he's got, uh, oh, yes, it's in the portion that's not actually for me to talk about. The believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter. So he's right. brought people with him too. No doubt some of those people know who John the Baptist is. Maybe even went and saw John the Baptist or were baptized by John the Baptist. I think that's a great place for him to start in this context because he's speaking to Gentiles and he can call upon maybe some of these Gentiles know who John the Baptist is. Maybe they've heard about these things already, and no doubt, as they are believers in God, whatever exactly that means at this point, um, they've no doubt heard about some of these same things. And, you know, and we still today as Christians do the same thing, right? We bear witness to the same thing, not in the same way. We're not eyewitnesses of the earthly ministry of Jesus, but we are witnesses in the sense that we we bear witness about these things. Um, and we, we preach to the people and we testify that he's the one, he's the appointed one, the Messiah, to be the judge of the living and the dead. There's a lot of neat, um, I know we're getting close on time, but there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of neat creedal language in here too. A lot of little phrases that, uh, you know, the flow of this really follows the apostles and Nicene creeds. So, Maybe that's a neat way to think about this, too, when I think about a salvation history or a summary of how salvation goes. Well, it's in the creeds. When somebody asks you, what exactly do Christians believe? You don't have to make it up. It's not intimidating. Just say the Apostles' Creed. Just say the Nicene Creed. That's what we believe. That's how the story goes. Uh, that's, that's the work of God for salvation, not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. Such a great message, too. And you're right. I mean, we have access to—well, let's just put it this way. Whenever I hear people saying that they're intimidated about talking about faith or Jesus or God's salvation history to someone, almost always that person is intimidated because they themselves aren't able to articulate it. And, and first of all, I think this is, in a way, proof that the Holy Spirit works faith in the hearts of people and that the, the means by which we bring people into faith isn't going around convincing them, because how many believe, have saving faith, and yet aren't very knowledgeable about the details of the faith? So I, I do believe that faith comes from hearing this message proclaimed by the power of the Holy Spirit. With that said, though, as you're equipping yourself, right, as you're readying yourself to give a hope for the, or give a reason for the hope that's within you, being in the Bible is so crucially important. It gives you the language. It gives you the story, so to speak. It gives you the narrative history, and it, it makes those connections for you. And that's why no matter where you are in your journey of faith, you always have somewhere to grow into as you study God's Word. You never outgrow it. And being in the Word, just being in it, simply enough will give you a lot more confidence than all those words that you need to know when the time comes up, when you're proclaiming Christ to someone. Because every good Christian wants to share Christ with people, but it takes a lot of hard work and habit to be able to be prepared to share that word. But you're right, we also have shortcuts, the small catechism, the creeds, um, all of our dogmatics, really. All of these are ways in which we've studied deeply about what God's Word says, and we put them into other words so that we can, well, understand it all the more. 
So we have so many ways and abilities to enrich our own witness. I, uh, I just wish more people would take advantage of that. It kind of goes back to the, the, almost the embarrassment of riches that we have in having the whole scriptures in a language that we can read and that we have, you know, most of our churches, I think, um, I think I can confidently say most, I know not all churches, but most of our churches have Bible studies. Most of our churches have pastors who are willing and eager to teach. I can say firsthand as a pastor, there is nothing I love more than being asked to teach about something, right? It's, it's one of our favorite things to do. Um, but, but to, to engage with it and, and to remember, you know, one of the things I try to encourage people with is there's no such thing as a stupid question when it comes to the scriptures, right? Questions are born out of faith and a desire to understand more. And, and so charity for ourselves, especially, and also for one another to recognize that we are at different places in our knowledge of the scriptures, that we are all learning together and that there is always more to learn. Uh, I think beginning with that sort of patience and grace within the church also helps us to have patience and grace for those outside the church who may know little more, if anything at all, than be able to tell you John 3.16 and maybe a little chunk of Psalm 23. I think those are the ones that probably most unbelievers, if you got them started, could do a little bit of just by virtue of knowing, you know, those two are the ones that show up all over the place. But, you know, to to kind of recognize ultimately it's not it's not us. It's not our own reason or strength, as the catechism says, but it is the Holy Spirit working by the word. And for us in the divine service, working also through the sacraments um, and, and seeing that it, that it is the work of God that we get to participate in uh, to bring salvation to all the nations as we ourselves have received it in the nations. Um, and that, that last verse there, verse 43, to him, to Jesus, all the prophets, which is to say all the scriptures, all the Old Testament at this time, bear witness that everyone, no one's excluded, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And that's that's salvation. Everyone who believes receives forgiveness of sins, is reconciled to the Father, has a place in the kingdom which has no end. Well, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Roger Mullet. He's the pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Buffalo, Wyoming, not Cherubusco, Indiana anymore. <laughs> he's left those saints there, and he's now serving the saints in Buffalo. Uh, God's blessings on your new call, and thanks so much again for being on the show. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. Folks, tomorrow uh, we turn and continue, really, in Acts chapter 10. Uh, a significant turning point occurs in the early Christian church as the Holy Spirit is then poured out upon the Gentiles, kind of like a Gentile Pentecost. And while Peter is still speaking to Cornelius in his household in Caesarea, the Holy Spirit is falling upon them just as it happened to the Jewish believers back on Pentecost. And witnessing this divine confirmation, Peter, if he hasn't already, certainly acknowledges and realizes that God shows no partialities, that Gentiles too can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and be welcomed into the faith. This powerful encounter, it challenges deeply ingrained prejudices. It prompts Peter to defend his actions before the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. So much to talk about. 
And we're going to do that tomorrow at the same time, 11 o'clock central here on Thy Strong Word. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in Thy strong word. Thank <laughs> you.